0: Inside the post dispatch. Hi Liz. Hey Beth, how you doing? I'm doing really well. How are you doing? I am doing well, doing well. Excited that it is officially fall. I think the last time we recorded, I was still pushing back against it being summer in <laughs> September. Um, but ready for some scary movie marathons and probably too much candy. I love too much candy.
1: Halloween is great. Yeah one of my favorite times of year until the the time changes and then everything gets dark
0: see i i love the early days of that it's in like february when it's still dark outside at like four o'clock that it starts to wear on me you
1: no, i <laughs> from the very first day it's the worst uh, well understandable it's kind of appropriate that we're talking about a dark time of year today's show is going to be a little bit on the darker side than some of our recent episodes
0: yeah, I think that's safe to say that.
1: We're joined by Erin Haffernan, who is a delight, not the reason why this is a darker episode than other episodes. <laughs> um, she's been at the Post-Dispatch since 2017, and she started as a general assignment reporter. One of her stories from that time that most readers might remember is when she covered an Uber driver who was live streaming his rides on Twitch. But we're not here today to talk about that story. But you can find it at stltoday.com. <laughs> anyway, she's now Erin is now the court's reporter for the Post-Dispatch, um, working alongside reporter Katie Call, and recently covered charges against Gary Muehlberg, who's been suspected in killing at least five area residents. Uh, Muehlberg is already in prison on a life sentence after he killed Kenneth Atchison, whose nickname was Doc, in 1993, and he was charged in late September on suspicion of killing four women, Robin Meehan, Brenda Pruitt, Donna Wrightmeyer, and Sandy Little. Aaron, can you explain a little bit about the case against the suspected serial
2: killer? Sure. Um, so all of the new charges came, um, are connected to women who uh, disappeared in 1990. Mm-hmm. So all of the women were connected to this area of Cherokee Street at the time called the South City Stroll or Southside Stroll or just the stroll. It was, you know, then known for prostitution, basically. And um, these women over, you know, less than 12 months all went missing. And then some days after and some months after, then the, their bodies were found along the side of the road, often in very busy areas. Um, Highway 70 is, is one of the most memorable ones. Um, in different containers or packages. So th- there was one in a trash can. Um, one of the bodies was found stuffed between two mattresses all the way out in in Lincoln County. One was found in St. Charles County um, in a dresser that was then put into a, like, homemade-looking plywood box. Hmm. So for a very long time, police had suspected that these were all connected. Um, You know, we covered the killings a lot at the time back in the 90s and you know within less than a year we were publishing stories saying that local investigators and then eventually the FBI had suspected that it was a serial killer um, and they profiled him um, at some point the FBI came up with the nickname the package killer um, for him and um, they knew that these cases were linked but for more than 30 years nobody was charged. Mm-hmm. There were different suspects that came up, you know, different investigative techniques were used. But then finally, uh, earlier this year, a DNA match on, um, some of the evidence found with one of the bodies, a condom connected to Gary Muehlberg, who has been in prison since 1993. And the case that he's in prison for was actually a man, um, Sorry, he's been in prison since 1995. It was a man that he killed in 1993. A man that he knew actually. Mm-hmm. They uh, used to hang out together at a diner where a lot of contractors and you know people who worked in construction would hang out. And he lured him to his home, uh, telling him that he would buy, he would sell him a six thousand dollar Cadillac. Well, he ended up taking the money and fleeing. And police found uh, Kenneth Atchison's body in his basement. um, In Muehlberg's basement. Yeah, in Muehlberg's basement, um, about a month and a half after he was killed. And um, so he had been in prison for all these years, but he was never a suspect in these women's killings until the DNA match.
0: And it's interesting he wasn't a suspect, because even though there are some, some big differences between uh, the, the four women that, who he killed and Atchison, uh, the package piece of it is very similar, how he had, um, he hadn't really disposed of him because he was still in his basement, but, uh, packaged for lack of a better word, Atchison's body, uh, in his home was also in kind of like a makeshift coffin, if you will, box. Uh, and I know that there were some other maybe parallels there too, that you're probably better suited to
2: describe well they had all been strangled all of his victims were strangled um and yeah there was a makeshift uh coffin and that he held the bodies for you know an extended period of time and actually um in atchison's case uh he was trying to convince some of his friends. This is all all came out during the trial back then. Mm -hmm. He had tried to convince some of his his friends and associates to come to the house, and he offered giving them a car or different things if they would take the box out of the basement (laughs) and dispose of it for him. So maybe his idea was to have a similar disposal too, but he never got there because they found the body. You interviewed the police detective who investigated these cases. Her name is Jody Weber,
1: and she's with the O'Fallon Police Department. Mm-hmm. What made her so intent on trying these cases? And could you explain, too, um, she's in O'Fallon, Missouri, but a lot of these women disappeared from South City. Why, why was she even investigating it in the first place? Mm-hmm.
2: She became interested in the case because Sandy Little, one of the women um, who was taken from the stroll, her body was found in O'Fallon, Missouri, which back then was a more rural area than it is now, you know, kind of a very quickly growing suburban area today. But uh, Detective Sergeant Weber said that it really was maybe the only cold murder case for O'Fallon you know, in O'Fallon, Missouri. Mm-hmm. You know, there wasn't a lot of murders happening 30 years ago back then. Um, so she had always kind of been interested in it, especially since, you know, it's such an unusual uh, thing to happen, you know, discover the body along the highway, um, and it hadn't been solved. Mm-hmm. So back um, in 2008, I believe, she found out that none of the evidence in the case and several of the cases linked to it had been tested for DNA, which, because DNA testing was not a possibility back then when these happened. So then for the next 14 years, she's been, you know, pushing the different um, crime labs to test for DNA until finally they got the match. And it
1: sounded like a really exhaustive process, interviews going through, I can't even imagine
2: how much evidence sorting all of that yeah she described to me just the process of going into the evidence rooms and pulling out all these old boxes of evidence and you know just lists and lists of evidence and some of it was in a state that you couldn't even tell what it was anymore and then you know trying to list out which things were the most likely to have DNA. You know, Mm. I think one of the other detectives who had worked on the case over the years, uh, Joe Bergoon said that they were really hopeful that a t-shirt that had sweat stains, that that was going to be the match that would open up the case. But, uh, so they just kept at it and they just kept the DNA lab, you know, uh, the St. Charles County crime lab was the one that eventually found the DNA match after just repeatedly testing and looking for for some, you know, fragment of DNA. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh,
0: so tell us, obviously, again, Nielberg had been in prison since I think you said 1995. Why did it take 14 years to identify someone who was already in prison and connect him, his DNA to this crime?
2: I think that that testing was just finding a usable, a usable fragment of DNA in that old evidence they had to find one that was complete enough mm-hmm. that they could run it through CODIS which is a DNA database um, which eventually came up with the match I think that they just you know didn't find what they needed I think you know it's a difficult you know process I think also the advances in the technology played a big role. Um, The uh, representatives with the crime lab said, you know, when the charges were announced, that over those 14 years, the DNA testing just became more sensitive, is the word he used, just able to pick up, you know, things that it wouldn't have picked up, you know, 14 years ago.
1: Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. You need less of a sample in order to get a better hit, maybe, (laughs) or a more complete hit, I shouldn't say better, but yeah. yeah. One of the things that struck both Liz and I when we were reading this story is how much and how hard that you and Kim Bell, the crime reporter you worked with on this story, you guys really worked hard to bring these victims to life. Um, How difficult was it to find their family members?
2: Well... We were helped a lot, actually, by, you know, back in the 90s, 1990, you know, to maybe 1994. The Post-Dispatch covered these stories, um, and there were several family members of victims that were interviewed back then. Mm -hmm. Um, So we had their names from those stories. Um, There was also some coverage later, later. the Riverfront Times did a story, you know, kind of looking back at the case um, long before we knew that it would be solved, mm-hmm. where there were a few, you know, victims' family ne- members named in that story. So then it just becomes a matter of tracking them down. So, um, you know, we found a bunch of their phone numbers through our, you know, uh, people finder <laughs> um, phone book software. Um, And social media, I found several of them on Facebook. Um, And then, you know, in some cases, just, you know, knocking on their door.
0: Something, Erin, that you have to do in your work frequently, and I know Kim even more frequently is doing in her work, is interviewing family members about the death of a loved one. Uh, But typically, it's pretty soon after, uh, which is maybe a different approach that you would take as a reporter um, in a different tone in a conversation. Uh, You know, you're going back to some of these family members who lost people 30-something years ago, or almost 30-something years ago, you know, do you approach that differently as a reporter and the kinds of questions that you ask and, you know, kind of how you want to preserve the memory of these victims in your stories?
2: Yeah, it was kind of a different experience. One of them really stands out, uh, the brother of Kenneth Atchison, who, um, Gary Milberg has been in prison all these years for killing. Um, when I called him, you know, just before the charges were going to, the new charges were going to be announced, he actually hadn't heard that wow. the man who killed his brother was going to be charged with four more murders. So the next of kin had been told, but it just hadn't gotten through the family tree. Um, so he invited me over to his house and he pulled out this big file that he had and he opened it up and there were just pages and pages really notebooks full of handwritten notes that he had taken from the time that were his notes when he was searching for his brother um and he had phone numbers of everyone who was calling and no one was you know taking it seriously at first you know he says and uh actually the reporter who I wrote the story with Kim Bell her name and number was in one of those notebooks because she you know has been working here um since then and uh he had talked to her for a story she had written about back then um and he had pictures of his brother and his brother was very interested in you know ballroom dancing so he had a little um like notepad that he used that had like a I think a dancing monkey on it, and it just really, you know, it really o- reopened it back up for him. I think, and in, in a certain way, but he also, you know, said he wasn't surprised to hear that there were more, you know, victims. He had always wondered over the years, so it kind of answered that question for him. Like, is this the only, per- you know, how, what could bring someone to do this? So it gave him more information on that. Some of the family members of the victims um, that we spoke with also describe mixed emotions at the, the news. Um, on the one hand, they've been waiting so long to get some sort of answer about what happened. So I think there's a lot of relief and happiness there. But then a few of them mentioned that it just brings up a lot of old memories mm-hmm. and some, most of them not happy. You know, some of these, a lot of these women had pretty hard lives. And, um, So it brings up for some of the victims kind of memories of their own childhood and, you know, back, you know, how they were as kids back then losing their, you know, mother or sister. So I think it was mixed emotions and, you know, certainly at the press conference where the charges were announced, there was a lot of, there were some tears, there were some some cheers, just a lot of different feelings going on. Yeah, it's like you're reliving
0: that trauma in that time, but divorced from so much of, you know, the time and, and what has happened versus someone who is just processing a, a trauma that has just occurred uh, and, you know, how they're going to react in that moment and how, you, how you're going to want to be sensitive to that in that moment as a reporter.
1: Did you and Kim make a conscious effort to contact these family members, like, to tell these stories of the victims?
2: Oh, yeah. Um, That was one. That was our number one. When we heard that this was happening, that was the number one goal Mm -hmm. to make sure that as much as we could, all four victims could have some family response, hopefully a photo. We tried our best to get what we could because we didn't want them just to be, you know, names of victims that, you know, died 30 years ago. We wanted to really get across that, you know, these women, all four of them were mothers, all four of them have family members still out there that have lived with this for 30 years, you know, and we also really didn't want people to, you know, one of uh, Barb Stutt, one of the sister of Sandy Little, really made the point that, you know, these weren't just sex workers, you know, I think she was concerned that people might write them off, you know, because what, of how they made money, but really getting across that, you know, these were full people with full lives and families and people that loved them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's one of the things I, I thought as a, when I was reading the coverage, you guys did a really beautiful job with handling these were people and not just women who were kidnapped off the street.
0: Yeah, And Muhlberg has said to police um, in, in both the stories that the story that you and Kim wrote together and in a subsequent story that you wrote um, about Jody Weber and the investigation into Muhlberg uh, that he he says he did not target sex workers. He did not target women. Uh, I guess you could make the argument that his last victim was a man who he knew breaking kind of from that pattern. Um, but I think all the more reason to, you know, tell these women's stories, it's, it's hard to fully wrap your head around the idea that he wasn't targeting women who were sex workers
2: in the 90s, the early 90s. I think he's, cert- I mean, his pad, the pattern shows that he followed the same, you know, he admitted to police uh, when they interviewed him following a similar pattern, you know, in all of the killings he's now charged with. So as far as his statements to police, he wrote Detective Sergeant Weber a letter, um, and he also was interviewed by investigators multiple times, and of course they asked him why did you do this? I think that's what everyone wants to know. When you hear about something like this, how could you, why would you? And his answers have been pretty unsatisfactory um, as he just has told them that he doesn't even know why. Mm-hmm. And
1: he's basically been, I mean, he, you, you wrote, he got in trouble in, in prison for passing jelly beans to another prisoner. And that's like the only time he's been disciplined. Yes,
2: so. yes. So he, Weber said that he appeared very remorseful, I guess, on one of the interviews that she had with him and that he just repeatedly kept saying that it was a dark time in his life. Uh, We got a copy of a letter that he sent her that just said, um, no more running. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, that he wanted to, he thought he would have a more peaceful time in prison, you know, admitting to what he had done and that he just kept saying that it was a short, dark period in his life. At the same time, he didn't want to
1: talk to investigators about these cases until they pulled the death penalty off the table.
2: Yes. So initially, um, when they went to interview him, Weber said that he seemed to be holding back quite a bit, um... And he maybe almost didn't believe them when they said that they had DNA evidence she described. Didn't know him saying they were going to take more evidence from, from him, um, a swab, a cheek swab, um, just to confirm it. Mm-hmm. And he said, if you've got that, why do you need more? So he was kind of doubting it. And um, she said a key moment for her was she asked him, what are you f- afraid of? What are you scared of? And he didn't say being accused of murders I didn't do, she said that he said the death penalty. Mm -hmm. So he is in his 70s and in poor health. So the prosecutors in Lincoln, St. Charles, and St. Louis County, where the victim's bodies were all found, all agree to take the death penalty off the table. So after that assurance and another letter um, saying that his life wouldn't substantially change in prison with new charges— that's when he started to admit to each killing and in the letter he sent to Weber he not only admitted to the four he's been charged with but he admitted to another killing which he has not yet been charged with. Um, Police are still trying to connect the dots to see if they can connect a You know body that was found at the time Mm -hmm. to him now so he's not been charged with that but he wrote in the letter that he had left a body in a a, at a car wash in a metal container yeah in a metal container at a car wash so they haven't been able to put all the pieces together on that one yet
0: as we've talked about Muehlberg is in his early 70s he is not in great health he was actually diagnosed with cancer uh, I think before charges were brought in the case uh, so, what do you expect the timeline will look like for the trial, and what
2: possible sentences is Muhlberg facing? Well, he's already serving a life sentence well, yeah. <laughs> so he and he and the death penalty has been taken off the table. Mm-hmm. so really, there is no more sentence that he could have on on top of life, and you know he's in poor health, so we'll see if this ever goes to trial. Um, there the investigators have said. Maybe the biggest development to look out for is if they are able to bring more charges if they find more victims that are connected to him. So far, the four that he's been charged with are the ones that they that he's admitted to that they have been confident that um, that he is behind.
0: Yeah. And something else that stuck out to me uh, from your September 20th story, which you wrote with Kim... Uh, you quoted Barb Stutt, you mentioned earlier, a stepsister of victim Sandy Little. Uh, and in that story, Stutt said, I don't want this news to give him any fame. He doesn't deserve any notoriety. We kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but to dig in a little bit deeper, you know, this we see this often with serial killers. They become infamous in our culture. Uh, they are covered ad nauseum on true crime shows, podcasts, etc. And, uh, you know, the victims and their names, their identities, who they were as complete people, is often just a footnote in these stories of serial killers. Um, it really struck me that in your story with Kim and in your subsequent story, you focus on the victims and their families, who they were, uh, and who they, their families want them to be remembered as. Um, and Muhlberg was not even mentioned in the headline of your that initial story from September 20th. Uh, as a reporter, what do you consider when approaching these sorts of stories? You know, is any part of the think- is that any part of the thinking or framing?
2: Sure, um, it's always a balance of balancing the fact that people do want to know who did this, why did they do this, what do we know about them, how did they do it, um, with not letting the victims be a footnote. Um, and doing our best to fill out who they were as people as best as we can within the time we have. I think that was a big priority for us. And when we did talk to the victim's families, they were happy to get a chance to, you know, for the most part, uh, explain who they were, tell, you know, stories that weren't connected to the death. And so we made sure to put that, you know, give that good prominence in the story.
0: Yeah, and the, the file photos um, and the family photos that were shared were really affecting, too. Um, again, just telling this more complete story of who these women were um, before Gary Milberg.
2: Mm-hmm. A lot of them were very young. I mean, when you look at the photos, mm-hmm. the and I think Robin 18. was 18. Robin Meehan, yeah. um, who was found in Lincoln—her body was found in Lincoln County. She was 18 years old. So.
0: Yeah, and like you um, said, all four were mothers, and you know, just thinking of the lives they had in front of them that were— tragically cut so short um you know it it really tugs at your heartstrings, but it also i think as a reader uh you know also an editor but Mm -hmm. (laughs) but first as a reader um it really felt like a complete tribute and i think to to pivot just a little bit
1: you started out as a general assignment reporter and i know that you've switched beats a couple of times and you're gonna now be doing course reporting with katie call uh What is your approach going to be on that beat? It's a little bit more of the kind of, I don't want to say document heavy, but it
2: is. uh, Courts are about documents in some ways. Yeah, they're about documents, but they're also about people. You know, and when you come through, um, there are so many um, really gripping, you know, human stories that come through the courts in the St. Louis area. Yeah. And so I'm hoping to have, you know, a focus on, the people you know who've been affected and hopefully still talking to family members you know as this stuff comes through the court system and still yeah just telling the you know stories of these crimes or civil cases as they you know get to the court side I've done a lot more on the crime side in my five years here the you know police charges side.
0: The last my question would be if there's anything you're working on that you're you know, I don't I know you probably don't want to give away any like really good scoops, but anything that you're working on that you would want to mention.
2: I guess just look out for coverage of St. Louis County courts and trials. We've got a lot of interesting trials scheduled coming up, so just you know, keep reading S STL Today. .com. <laughs> Plug. <laughs> uh, sorry.
0: You're baked fine. into the job. Mm-hmm. You have
1: to. STL.com. <laughs> STL. mm-hmm. How fast can
0: you say it? STLtoday.com. <laughs>
1: I can't. I don't think I can say it faster. No? Uh,
0: uh, I've been practicing my whole life, though, for that accelerated TikTok speech. So,
1: thank you so much for joining us, Erin. We appreciate it.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Erin.